Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real-life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Super excited today to have Danielle Mensa uh, with us today for the, the podcast. She's worked in the financial industry, super successful history. We met through networking. Um, she's a parent uh, and she gets real, she gets vulnerable. She talks about self-harm, an abusive stepfather, um, just really dark stuff, alcohol um, abuse, lots of escapism, university leading to a rock bottom. She just gets so real, but also so practical about the small steps that we can take to move ourselves forward from that place. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Let's go. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm very excited today. We've got Daniel Mensa. She is the founder of Kidanchi. Uh, it's a business focused on helping leaders live a life that they love. And she helps create businesses that um, make companies places where people really love to work. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Hey, Petra. Thank you. It's great to be here. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. So we've known each other for a couple of years just uh, through networking events or leadership events. Um, so I'm so excited to, to finally kind of have your, your story uh, of how you got here onto the podcast. Um, so fill in the blanks for our listeners. What are some of the things that you're most passionate about at the moment in, in work or in life? Yeah, my passion is really about people and helping people become everything that they can be. You know, kind of, we're beautiful, natural, innocent, creative forces when we appear on Earth. And then all this stuff goes on in our lives and right. kind of starts to hold us back. And so, the, you know, what I want to do in my life, I've done it with myself, and I'm, what I'm really channeling into my uh, work with, um, with individuals, whether they're in a company or it's, you know, more private with them, is just helping them release all of the stuff that's kind of getting in the way and um, and really understanding how to nourish yourself, whether that's eating the right foods, getting the right amount of sleep, the way you think, the way you understand thoughts, you know, how you kind of get yourself into recognizing that you're fully autonomous in your own bubble that you live in and taking real um, pleasure in the autonomy that you have over yourself. So it's really just about, about people and being free and being creative and being the natural force that everyone could be. I love that. Uh, um, I love the the autonomy thing because I feel like I've been doing amazing work as in really exciting work and underneath that maybe letting myself down or feeling I've had less choice in how I look after my body and my mind, which is ironic given that I'm a mental health consultant, um, mm. but realizing uh, you know what the choices are that we do have. So I've, mm. I've taken uh, uh, two episodes ago, we interviewed a guy called Harry Kalimnios. I've had his shake today which is just actually making me buzz. <laughs> I'm just like buzzed. He was all from the physical health aspect. Um, so, so as you know, the theme of this podcast is around adversity, rock bottoms, resilience. And I'm always curious about people's sort of formative years. Uh, mm. So what, what was it like growing up? Do you think your, your parents kind of set you up for, for the real world? Oh, wow. What a question. Um, yes, I really think they did. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have uh, two very loving parents. One passed away many years ago. My mother's still around. She's an awesome woman. 
but um, but I was definitely shown what really goes on in the world <laughs> as much as you can be living in a kind of Western uh, society. Mm. Um, yeah, so you know we had lots of lots of amazing things happening. I grew up on a farm. We had so much freedom. You know, now I live kind of on the suburbs of a big city, you know, London, but. Back then, we were in kind of greeneries, loads of animals all the time, and it was just a very kind of easy, simple way of life in terms of how it started out. Um, and then, uh, you know, as as does happen in a lot of people's lives, um, although some people say my level of family dysfunction is slightly beyond the average. Okay. <laughs> That's mine. Well, the average, but, you know. Yeah, um, yeah so then, then stuff, stuff kind of went on um and and so as a as a person I had in some ways a very strong foundation um but in others I think a lot of messages kind of coming into me that meant I felt quite low in myself um didn't have a great deal of self-esteem didn't feel particularly confident and and really, um, as I was in my kind of teen years, was struggling to get to grips with how I was going to live a life that I would enjoy. Um, and I can obviously get into more specifics about what, what was going on and how that was affecting me. But I'm not sure if you want to ask more questions or just go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, let's go there. So, so um, of course, I'm curious, as you know, about those rock bottom moments or, or the things that um, sort of form us and create the, the person that we are today, knowing very, full well that it's usually like that and then a couple crashes. And, uh, mm. and also that the, the industry that you worked in was very different from some of the stuff that, that you're doing now. But let's go there. Um, how was it as a teenager? Sort of how challenging did it get for you? Yeah. So, um, my parents, um, both very smart, strong, caring, loving people. Um, but they divorced when I was around eight, nine and I was boarding at the time. So I was kind of away for a few years, although, you know, back every weekend or so, but there was just general sense of kind of disconnection. And then, um, when I was around, 12 my mum started to see someone who she just fell madly in love with and and then they decided you know they would get together and so he left his previous family and and you know we kind of moved in with him which was a little bit disruptive for kind of everyone involved in that then they decided they were going to break up because he wanted to go back and so my mum and I disappeared off to New Zealand and we spent several months traveling around New Zealand when I was 13 which is an incredible traveling experience amazing um, but we came back. I didn't want to be away from my brother and, and my father. And then uh, she got back together with this guy. And, and, and so the three of us lived together for several years. And unfortunately for him, first and foremost, um, he was still very much struggling to deal with stuff that had gone on in his life. Uh, they were both incredibly heavy drinkers and they would um, end up fighting. And he... Um, would get incredibly aggressive and at times violent towards my mother. Um, and he was very um, irritable. And as a result of that kind of aggression and that kind of anger that was really strong, kind of raging in him like a fire, he was in effect emotionally abusive mm. because it was such a kind of fearful, difficult, high stress environment for me to grow up in. And as I briefly mentioned my brother wasn't living with us so I was the only other person in that household um That's yeah a alongside 
Yeah. Pardon? So just a lot to hold on to with, with a yeah. young sort of forming brain trying to figure things out. Yeah, it, it, yeah, totally, exactly. And that's it. Alongside, you know, you kind of hit puberty, you're at school, there's all the kind of playground stuff going on. There's all the not sort of normal stuff and hormones starting to shift and all of that, but a very kind of difficult family environment in terms of where I lived. And then on my dad's side, he partnered up around the same time with a woman who was manic depressive. She's, they had a child and she suffered really severe postnatal depression. And so there was kind of two very gloomy households, yeah, which I would sort of flip between. And, and, um, and it, yeah, it was, it was tough. Um, it wasn't all bad. There was still, sure. you know, some fun and there was some love and all of that. But nonetheless, an environment where I was in a fairly, um, you know, permanent state of, of fear um, and kind of walking on eggshells, always trying to do the right thing. And so I internalised a lot of that. Because I was wondering if there was anyone you could speak to or like... I, I think, you know, I maybe spoke to like a best mate when I was around 17, but it was so shrouded in secrecy, you know, such a cover-up operation. Um, you know, one of the worst was, you know, my mum kind of beaten black and blue, going to see her in the morning, her eyes kind of bulging out like that, going to have a shower to get ready to go to college and the bathroom door was on the floor. And I'm like, why? Oh, okay, because you managed to knock through that to get to my mum where she was hiding. Mm. You know, st- stuff like that, really kind of her- horrific experience. Um, and I, I think I was around the age of sort of 14, 15, and unfortunately picked up the idea from a friend at school, which is so sad, and she was going her own, through her own kind of stuff, that, um, that you can self-harm. And so I started to kind of scratch my arms and then eventually take a knife to my arms, and I've got some, you know, pretty pretty full-on scars as a result of that. You don't really notice them so much now, but back then they were they were extremely visible. So I would spend summers wearing kind of long sleeve tops. It <laughs> didn't matter what the weather was. I was hiding, and in effect, I was hiding. Mm. Yeah, there was so much going on inside and so much going on in that family home that just couldn't, couldn't be spoken about. And one of my rock-bottom moments was after my parents had unfortunately found me um, at some point with my sleeves rolled up because it was a hot day and they'd seen my arms. They'd come back from a walk unexpectedly and they saw it, okay, you know, drama ensued. So they kind of knew what was going on and they were trying to work out how to support me through that. And then, um, yeah, one, one evening something bad had gone on and I, I'd gone into my room and I'd taken a carving knife uh, and I was holding it against my neck. I was in such a state of distress. I was contemplating whether to cut a new area, shall we say, which could have had quite dramatic um, consequences. And I, I didn't want to do that. Um, and then in a way, I suppose I got lucky because suddenly I heard my parents back in the house. I think they were trying to cook dinner and they were like, where's that knife? Whoa. And they, they came running down to my room and then, you know, kind of grabbed me and were like, calm down, you know. So it was really difficult because those two, I, you know, they were loving people. Sure. Did I feel really loved at the time? Did I feel valued? No. You know, there were so many conflicting messages but of course they were distraught, they were worried about me and it wasn't hard for them to think that the environment that we were living in was having such a strong effect on me as well as, you know, the other stuff that goes on with a kid that's a teenager going through school, etc. Um, so that, that was um, 
that's pretty horrendous. But I was fortunate to see a psychotherapist. Um, I don't think I had that many sessions with her, but she helped me understand this this break um, in the kind of causal link of how you're thinking and how you're feeling, and that no nobody makes you feel something. You know, you you again, it goes back to that autonomy piece. So I was really fortunate at such a young, tender age. Yes. The, you know, who was well trained and um, wise to to help me understand that, and that helped with a lot of kind of family relationships for sure. Um, but unfortunately, we couldn't really finish off that that work because then I escaped, and it really did feel like an escape to university. Um, and I was lucky to get there because, like, you know, I remember going to an exam. I did business studies, and we had some horrific fight in the morning. And then my my stepdad drove me to college and I was just in tears. And then I had to walk into an exam room, pull myself together and try and get through it. And it was the the hardest piece of the business studies that I was doing. And um, funny enough, I didn't get a good grade then, but it was modular. So I could retake it. And in the end, I came out with three A's from A-levels. Oh, my goodness. But I'm just wondering, so obviously there's a lot of misunderstandings around self-harm. Um, and it's just worth noting for people listening, if, if they're if they're unaware, like the the purpose of it for someone, which really yeah. is around release, right? And and not having a place to to go with some horrific feelings or emo- like not having any uh, maybe even understanding of what's going on in your mind, just feeling yeah yeah, yeah absolutely you're, you're completely spot on. You know, some people think of these sorts of, you know, we call them coping mechanisms, self-harm, eating, you know, all sorts of things that sometimes we start to do. And people think sometimes it's um, attention-seeking, like crying out. Self-harm is, in my experience of it, the opposite. Yeah. I did not want anyone to know it was a release. Yeah. And watching, and this sounds pretty horrific, but watching blood drip out of my arms um, it's quite emotional actually, was, um, was literally like the emotion and the torment that I was feeling inside coming out. Um, yeah, so it was like, it was like a method to, to do that. And the reason I started doing it, as I said, was because a friend at school was doing it in a much more severe way. And I literally thought, ah, that's how I get this out. Mm. That's how I can do it. And now, of course, I know so many more techniques and, and so, you know, I'm so enriched in the way I understand us human beings to be able to express feelings, to understand my needs and to understand how to request that I want those needs to be met, first and foremost by myself, you know, going back to what you said at the start, but also by, you know, my support network, my kind of dream team, my hubby, my best mates, you know, my mum, etc., um so yeah to any any parent whose child is self-harming to anyone that is self-harming um you know there are other ways and it's so important to first acknowledge what you're feeling and to then ask for support so that because is, there is, is the hardest there is thing own and it is really hard because there's so much shame. So, mm. Yeah, and you, you know, you're often afraid. You think something awful is going to happen if, if you reach out. Whereas I would say it's the opposite. Once you start to share what you're experiencing, you often realize that a lot of people are actually aware 
you know, I had some amazing teachers at the college I was at who clearly had picked up on the fact something was going on. It wasn't as well hidden as I thought it was, funnily enough. And um, and there is there is so much more support. And and now obviously you know we're you know, how many how many decades on? Just a couple. <laughs> and, yeah, and um, yeah, there's, there's incredible charity organisations. You know, there's much more awareness of all of this stuff. But unfortunately, with self harm, it's it's becoming way more common. And and what I would love is to see the curriculum at schools amended such that there was education around how to recognize emotions, how to recognize your needs and how to communicate around them. And there's, there's amazing, quite simple techniques to that, um, which, you know, every teacher should know. <laughs> and, and, and then we could literally change the world by helping people in that way. And then from a professional sort of therapist perspective, it isn't so much just, you know, for, for people um, talking so much about the self-harm unless it's appropriate, but it's giving, providing space to talk about all of the other stuff, the built up feelings and thoughts and emotions that are actually yeah. affecting you. Yeah. Cause I think what happens is we, we try to pretend we're not feeling what we're feeling because from a very young age, almost, you know, from birth, we're conditioned to shut down our feelings. So from the very little, when a baby cries, we say, shush, 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 it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fundamental denial of how that baby is expressing emotion and how they're feeling. So it starts at a very young age. Yeah. You know, you add general kind of society conditioning and then add on top of that perhaps some very difficult traumatic experiences. And what, what we tend to try to do is pretend that we're okay, not talk about it, not let ourselves even be aware that it's happening. And kind of put it in a little box with a lid that's, you know, welded shut. Except it isn't. <clears throat> and, it, and it isn't. And it doesn't work like that. And, you know, the emotion is carried in our body and it stays in our body until we release it. And there's, you know, again, several different amazing ways that you can get this stuff out. The first thing is, is allowing yourself to recognize that there's stuff there um, and, and then working out how you can get it out. Absolutely. And so I know that, go ahead, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, and, and, the, and the more natural we are at doing that, um, you won't get anywhere near thinking that you want to or need to self-harm. You know, think of what self-harm is. You know, yes, there's self-harm cutting yourself, but there's self-harm, you know, not, not eating correctly, there's self-harm not getting enough sleep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, lighter touch, if you will, self-harm. There's all sorts of different ways that we don't take good care of ourselves. And in a way, it all starts with not allowing yourself to be a naturally expressive being that's full of a whole range of emotion. And the more easy you are and the more you just let it flow like a river through you, the less you hold on to, just the easier and simpler your life is. And so I know you've had a couple decades now um, of, of learning these things slowly over time. So what are the new coping mechanisms? Who are your group of people, your support network that allows you to, to work in the amazing way that you do, to create impact, to be a parent, to, mm. to look after yourself in so many ways. Um, talk us through any other sort of rock bottoms or crisis points that, that you've experienced. And then we'll move into, you know, what are the things that you learned? What were the practical steps that, that maybe you even incorporate now? Yeah, sure. Um, so another rock bottom moment happened at university. Uh, so I'd got there, I'd stopped self-harming in terms of cutting my arms, the, the psychotherapist I work with, it just clicked, and I was like, yeah, done with that. 
but I was a heavy drinker. Yeah. That's extremely encouraged at university. I dabbled with drugs, you know, from the age of around 16, I think, and I dabbled here and there while at uni. And in this particular year, I think it was my fourth year, I hadn't done a great deal of work in a way in my first three years at university in terms of studying. Yeah. I a lot I you know built some great friendships in a way um but because I still had so much kind of crap going on in me it was um it was quite tough for me to be just a kind of calm level-headed stable person I think you're escaping still aren't you yeah absolutely and and I've got into this habit of going out with some mates having a good evening and then I would carry on to another nightclub and take loads of drugs on my own, um, you know, with some fairly random people that were there. And then I would get home at whatever time and I probably hadn't slept the entire night. And then I was supposed to go to, you know, work. And I just remember coming home and I was probably on, you know, what people typically refer to as a come down. But add on top of that, all the other stuff that you know, I kind of just hadn't dealt with, hadn't released. And I remember calling the Samaritans. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> just being like, hey, um, I feel really shit and I don't really know what to do about it. And of course, they were very supportive and huge empathy across the phone. But it was one of those moments where I thought, I'm really starting to struggle. And I got myself into some difficult eating habits. So I used to massively binge and just kind of go through an enormous amount of food um, and then desperately try and recover from that by massively under eating. Mm. And um, and so this rock bottom moment was a catalyst for me to go, okay, I can't carry on like this. You know, I only have so many more months left to complete my degree, and you know, I want to come out with, uh, you know, two one. That was my mission, and I do want this to go wrong, um, and I don't want to feel the way I feel. So, um, so I had to get myself out of that, and and it really was a moment where, as my mum reminded me the other day, I, I, you know, had to consider: do I drop out of university? You know, do I need to go into a kind of just just recover in order to recover? Yeah, yeah, and um, and so you know, we talked, and um, she actually came up to see me at university and gave me you know support and love, which I really desperately craved, and um, and then. Uh, we decided that I would stop the part-time job that I was doing for a few months just so that I had a bit more time to get through my exams. Um, I was still kind of a bit all over the place in terms of eating, but I managed to come out with my 2-1, hurrah. Um, and, uh, and so university and degree was done, and then I moved to London and then got into a whole different kind of way of life with different friendships, different kind of environment, and just started to grow in confidence um, while still having a long way to go in really becoming resourceful and how to take great care of myself, I, um, I realised that this kind of trap I was in of heavy binge eating, heavy under eating, was just a vicious cycle um, which was you know perpetual until I until I broke it. Um, so I did at university I think, uh, have a counsellor to help with the eating. And I was so disappointed when I spoke to a doctor, they couldn't even label the disorder. It was, you know, sufficiently erratic to be disordered eating, but couldn't fit neatly into a label. So I, was like, I don't even have an identity as a With kind of disordered eating illness, person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so so then I, you know, then I moved to London and um, things got a lot better. You started moving forward. So... You're obviously saying things like you saw a counsellor for a bit, there was a psychotherapist before. What else shifted just as far as 
your habits, uh, maybe the people you hung out with. You said your confidence was building. What I don't know, what were the key things that maybe supported that? Was it just time? Was it new environments? But you'd been to a new environment before and it just spiraled and gotten more extreme. So what helped you balance out some of the behaviors? Mm. I think it was um, kind of breaking free into, an, into a new environment that felt very much like it was my own thing to create. You know, nobody in my family ever really came to London. Oh, right. um, okay. it's, it's very much a kind of, this is me doing my thing. And I got myself a job at the London Stock Exchange, which was, you know, in some ways quite remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I managed to get the top mark in the country doing my banking law in the final year of university. You know, I just, I think I felt confident that I'm smart, um, you know, I'm, I'm fun. There's a lot of things that I can do in my life and, and, I, and I want my life to be as good as it can be. And I think that early learning, you know, as I mentioned from the first psychotherapist around, I'm, I'm kind of in charge. So that gave me this early sort of seed of confidence of actually this is my life to create. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I started working, I started making friends. I lived with two lovely people who were from university but not close mates. And that, I think, was great for me because um, it was just a very, very easy, settled, safe home. Really my first of that. Uh, so, you know, that, that was a great kind of base to operate from. Um, I think in some ways it was sort of unfortunate that I picked finance as a career because drinking was and is so incredibly encouraged. But at the same time, I really fit in. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and that people say, how do you kind of thrive in a male-dominated environment? And it wasn't so much that I was one of the lads, like I had to operate like a man in the workplace, but I was totally at ease with going out boozing and being full of banter and, you know, having a good laugh and building relationships in, in that way. Um, and that was part of it. You know, we were a social bunch. There was a lot of young guys and girls at that company um, who... I got to know and befriend. So I think through that came a strong sense of camaraderie, support, we're in this together. You know, the job was was interesting, it was different. Yes, there was an element of stress to that because I was outside my comfort zone. But, you know, in the early roles that I did there, I was quite quickly able to demonstrate that I could perform very well. Um, and so, you know, that was sort of running, running along quite, quite nicely, if you will. Amazing. Um, and so obviously now you're working for yourself, you continue to create the life that, that you want in, in more ways than, than one with your own business. Uh, and of course, as, as a parent, what allowed you just to transition into that? Was it just going, well, I've done what I need to in the finance industry, it's time to move forward, kind of what was that transition like? Mm. I'd always uh, known, really, that my purpose was to work with people. Okay. Uh, and, you know, yeah, I'd entered finance and I loved it. And, of course, that is working with people because, you know, it's, business is all about human interaction and interpersonal relationships, right? No matter how much technology takes over, that's what it is. So I enjoyed it because of that. Um, but the financial products, per se, just didn't float my boat. Mm. Um, I'm, not, I'm not somebody who gets really excited by man-made things I'm, I'm very much about human nature uh, and so for me to work uh, in the way that I do now which is really around 
how do you help people thrive in all the different ways, right? Physical, mental, emotional, kind of purpose, meaning, all those different levels that, that are within us. That is deep inside me. What I want to do, what I'm best at, and what I think the world really needs. Uh, so recognising that probably four or five years ago, Ironically, just as I was taking on my biggest job ever in finance, I started the transition. Mm. I did my coach training. I attended different events. I networked with different groups of people that are kind of more in this field, like your lovely self. And started to kind of dip my toes into an alternative way of being and working. And so when I actually launched Kidanchi this year, it, it isn't really a sudden new thing no. because it's been such a lovely gradual transition. And really, you know, since, since I was a teen, it's been in me that this is the work that I want to do. That's so this feels to me like I'm now on career plan A. And so do you think the adversity that you faced in your life was necessary or has prepared you in some way for the type of work that you do now. Absolutely. And, you know, people hear this and think, what? Because I see it as a gift. You know, I really believe in life happens for you, not to you. And so the difficult experiences that you go through, whatever they may be, are um, you know, moments where you can really be awakened and you can learn a lot. Like when I understand so much about empathy and forgiveness and hardship and, you know, effectively the kind of ancestry line of what we go through as human beings and how that influences us in our kind of current life that we're leading, I, I wouldn't have anywhere near the grasp of that or the appreciation or the, the fullness of understanding if I, hadn't, um, if I hadn't experienced what I have. So I'm a, I'm a long way out of the, oh, you know, poor me, these things happened to me, you know, why? And I'm, you know, far into, wow, this stuff happened. It was really, really tough. Um, some of the ways I dealt with at the time were also really tough. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad that now I understand how to, you know, handle stuff differently so that life can be easier. And hence why I'm so motivated to help other people learn that and discover that. Because then you don't have to necessarily go through the kind of 10 years of, crap that I took myself through because you can learn it quicker and then you're able to recover well you can but sometimes we don't sometimes we don't want to listen until we're at the rock bottom and and completely ready um yeah absolutely and that's that's such a good point you know it it isn't kind of a magical thing oh that's tough hey I'll just do these little techniques and I'm fine now you know it's, it's sometimes a really gradual process it's rare that people kind of flick a switch and overnight they're okay. You know, it's, it is about kind of embedding that experience and, and then you hit a point where you're like, actually, I can let that go now and move on into different things. It's a process. Um, and so now in this present day, do you have any kind of habits or routines that you try and consistently put in place um, in order to sustain this level of success and productivity and well-being and all those sorts of things for you? Mm. Yeah, I think the most important thing is my perspective in terms of thought and being able to catch very quickly 
where my thought is heading into a kind of downward spiral negative process. And I can literally just observe that and then, you know, say to myself, you don't need to pay attention to that. You know, it doesn't really matter why that's happening. It could just be that I'm really tired or it could be that something's gone on that's a bit of a trigger for me, you know, whatever. Um, I, I am happier and in a higher energy state when I am not overthinking and not going into analysis mode. And I used to think being really analytical was like the most amazing thing. It meant I was really smart. Um, I now realize actually, and having the benefit of a husband and a best mate who are just really peaceful, easy, content characters. um, And they don't, you know, kind of think all the time about all sorts of stuff. Like, yeah, that is the way. Um, So that's, that would be my number one thing. Just spot when your thought is veering off. Yeah. Notice, say to yourself, I don't need to pay attention to that because you'll be amazed how magically nothing, nothing changes, but you'll just be thinking differently and feeling differently. Which shows what we have in control again. So it might seem right. like there's chaos around us, but we have control over our thoughts, our mind, and how we approach it, things and react to them. Exactly. And that, that is, you know, that's my absolute number one thing because I think there's a lot of people I'm aware of um, who are really thinking they need to make massive life changes, you know, huge career transition, they're going to have to move to a different country, they're going to have to break off with a family member, you know, whatever it may be. And, and sometimes those things are the right thing. Sometimes you just need to try that out and see how that is. Like, you know, totally support that. But often I think there's a, there's a fundamental shift in perspective, which is that you can become aware of what I just said around thought, not paying attention to it, nothing else has to change. Yeah. And suddenly you feel better. The whole world can look different. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's really important. Then there's other techniques, um, for example, you know, having kind of morning rituals, bedtime rituals, and that stuff that I kind of evolve over time. And sometimes I'm, you know, I really kind of do that quite regularly. And it might consist of breathing exercises listening to some of my kind of favorite tunes because music really hits you at a kind of cellular level. So that's, that's kind of wonderful. And my son starts bopping around dancing. I like dancing. So there's good body movement with that bedtime. You know, it might be I do a little bit of Tai Chi, um, you know, dim the lights, get kind of prepared for sleep. And it, I kind of laugh about it having had a child only last year and all that you go through kind of help them sleep. It's like, yeah, we need to do the same. We've kind of forgotten that. We think we can be on, yeah. on the you know, on the emails, on the iPad, watching TV, bright lights, all this kind of stuff, and then just like magic, it's ready to shut down and then sleep perfectly, you know. Um, so, so that's things. And then if I'm preparing for stuff that's potentially stressful, mm-hmm. you know, I absolutely still get nervous and, you know, ahead of events and can get jittery about stuff I'm going to do in my work life, you know, and that kind of thing. I think that's perfectly normal. I like, uh, that. I like that you said that. That's so cool to hear because it's yeah. like, just because I've spoken in front of lots of people doesn't mean I still don't still like need to do some steps before to get in the zone. So but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I love speaking in front of people. It's like magic when you do that. And like, you know, you're able to kind of inspire someone, you know, they come up to you and they say, Oh wow, that was amazing to hear. It doesn't mean that I immediately stand there and I'm like, hey, I've got, still got this. Yeah. So I'm trying out the, uh, the Tony Robbins incantations at the moment, which is all about your physiology and saying 
these wonderful statements that kind of just pour into your body. So I'm trying that out. Before. But in terms of what I do to prepare, um, I find it really powerful to speak to the mirror. Uh, it's like it creates a kind of imprint in your brain um, and you kind of see how you are and you're able to kind of take on the fullness of the message that you want to communicate in whatever you're doing, so whether it's a you say. meeting or you're doing a big talk or... Yeah, you're just going to go and do something that you're feeling a little bit like, ah. Yeah, um, yeah you can just do some breathing exercises. Breathing's amazing and, like, the thing to calm you down. And then you can say these wonderful, kind of powerful, empowering statements and really own it in your body. Them? Do you need to believe the statements uh, in order, because people are often like, what kind of things do I say? Does, what if I don't believe it yet? Or what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think um, you can have a mix of what you really, really believe and aspirations in there. Um, so long as it, it feels real enough to you that it is something you can start to let wash into you. Because the idea of it is that the more you say it, the more real it becomes. But you, you know, you're absolutely spot on. Belief is is incredibly influential, and so it wouldn't work if you wrote a load of stuff that it just felt like you were saying something about someone else, and that your body was just going, "Nah, this ain't true." So if if there's something that you really want to believe about yourself but you don't, I'd say there's there's a different exercise to do where you could just take that and you could look at what's coming up. You know, is there a fear in there? alongside this kind of exciting statement you want to make about yourself delve into both suss out the feelings name the feelings kind of process work around it which you know, i'm guessing is what what you would do with some of your clients yeah and seek to kind of compile that out and release that yeah and get back to the right okay what do i you know who am i what do i want to embody and it's very very helpful to self-check how much am i connecting with this how true does this seem to me both in terms of who I am right now and the the me that I want to let out so it's slightly different you know a bit of a reframe it's not the who I want to become Mm. it's who you are deep inside and allowing that out yeah because like I've got evidence that I do well in public speaking so I've got the evidence but then I feel nervous and like oh fuck this is going to be the one that I fuck up right so in doing that kind of mirror work or the Wonder Woman pose or whatever, it's just kind of reminding myself that I don't need to be in fight or flight, that I've been in this situation before and can, and so it's accessing that resource. Yeah, and I, yeah, totally. And I think sometimes we forget that we are primal and you know, we are constantly checking for survival risk. Danger, yeah. And so you go and stand up, in front of a large group of people. And it doesn't, to me, matter how big that group is. There is a group, yeah. and you may or may not know them, but the way you're probably thinking about it is starting to trigger, aha, this is the equivalent of a lion uh, coming through a bush and is about to jump out and attack me. Yeah. Fight or fly, you know, yeah. you start to sweat because your body heats up as you get yeah. stressed. Mouth goes dry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, have a real challenge with blushing. Yeah. You know, that's all linked to this fight or flight state happening. And so those little techniques are exactly what you said, just ways to switch yourself out of what is the sympathetic state, which is when you're stressed and stimulated by a flight, into the parasympathetic, which is when you're relaxed. And when you're in that relaxed state, 
you are able to kind of draw on your natural resources and your all your creative juices flow out much more easily. And, it, and it's just a kind of happier, more flowing place to be. That said, you know, public speaking, a little bit of adrenaline pumping is, yeah. you know, it's a helpful thing. And it isn't about kind of just bobbling along like it's just some little relaxed beam. Yeah. It is about balance. It's about moderation. It's about knowing how to switch yourself from sympathetic into parasympathetic, i.e. stimulated to relax, stressed to calm. And, and that is, you know, a significant amount of what I focus on with my clients because uh, this is one of the key issues that people are facing. We're, like, constantly stimulated and stressed and have, have lost the innate understanding of how to come out of that. Uh, yeah, so, so I do things like that to help. Yeah. Uh, in, in certain situations there's something around just the self-awareness the experiences that you've yeah. had pulling it together experimenting I would say there's a, a portion of experimenting to see what well-being tips and tricks work for you and yeah. what you want to incorporate in different habits and routines but also giving us space to evolve so as yeah. a parent you have new challenges that you would you know need to, to in business as I know myself there's new challenges with isolation and, and having to rely on yourself. You know, there's so many different ways, but we can, we can adapt. Um, I feel like I'm going to have to have you on again one day, just <laughs> as our businesses develop and we talk more about workplace well-being and how we sustain our own well-being with new challenges. But for the sake of time, um, <laughs> yeah, it would be great. Um, there's also something around parenting and like, if we believe that adversity is good, do we also believe that our kids should experience adversity when we have the primal protective thing, though? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, again, you can go down the wrong path of thinking I need to wrap my kids in kind of cotton wool and, in fact, ideally put them in a room that's padded Yeah, nothing ever happens to them. That is, that is not the correct approach. The worst There's a thing wonderful you could book, The Magical Child's, uh, and I'm so glad I read it. And it was my stepfather that suggested I read it. And it had a profound shift for me in how I really understand children. And in that book, and I think a couple of others that I read as well, it does talk about um, being balanced and experiencing adversity and stress and relaxation. And, and it is just this kind of flow that ought to be happening. It's not about, you know, switching off stress altogether and, and avoiding it. It's, it's knowing how to kind of be in that flow and how, how to be resilient to it. And kids are a great example of that. You know, all of a sudden they will flip out, you know, the tears are there in a nanosecond. They're kind of screaming and they're upset. And then, you know, two, two seconds later, they're laughing. And there's a wonderful real example of expressing emotion in the moment and just rolling with it, right? Because at this point in time, I don't think my son has been conditioned to quell his emotion yeah, yeah, he just yeah. it fantastic and we'll see we'll see how we get on through the years of course yeah you're absolutely right it is, it is not about avoiding adversity of course i'd rather that he didn't experience a really kind of high violence trauma uh, you know fearful home environment no I don't, I don't want him to have to go through that no but will he experience adversity as he goes out into his life you know, some people joke about they can survive the playground these days. They can survive anything. <laughs> well, and then and the online world these days. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, becoming a parent is a magical experience, and I have loved discovering what it's like. You know, having this little person to take care of, 
And if there's ever a moment, and there are moments, of course, where I kind of go, you know, there's, there's a, we need to get out of the house, and he's yeah. decided to throw something, create a load of mess, and la, 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 except he doesn't know any of those things. He's not meaning to do anything that's wrong. He's just experimenting and curious and all the rest of it. And I might think, wow, you're going to leave. I think, self-manage. <laughs> Choices even then? Yeah. Does it always work? <laughs> no. Of course not, because I'm a normal human being, right? I'm not... I'm not much my disappointment as a perfectionist, Miss Perfect. Um, but again, you know, it's the, it's the little techniques, isn't it? And the, the other thing I would say as well, I just want to come back to this because you did mention it, I think, um, part of your question earlier on, is I'm not on my own. Mm. Yeah, I have, I have a, you know, a caring family that aren't close by, but I get to, you know, have calls with, visit. I have an amazing, loving, nurturing, supportive husband. I've got incredible best mates, friends that live locally, mum-in-law that's 20 minutes down the road you know but really lucky in terms of help with childcare, but just yeah. you know kind of love pouring in in that way and I have a coach I have someone who helps me in terms of you know overall health and well-being and you know a program that I'm always kind of working on in terms of how I can fine-tune I suppose and improve my understanding I'm continually doing courses and learning because I just don't think you ever stop. Agreed. There's much new information coming out now, new discoveries around neuroscience and things. I'm at a neuroscience event on Thursday. Yeah, there's just so much going on. So, it, and that's that's important because then it helps in terms of isolation of running your own business. Absolutely. I don't feel kind of on my own. So I feel very connected into lots of different people and lots of different kind of networks and so on. Um, but also, I'm, I'm not on my own in terms of my self-care. Yeah. There is, there is a, as I like to call them, dream team of people around me uh, who help me in different ways. Which is an amazing thing to, to build over, over time. Danielle, thank you so much for your time, your vulnerability. I appreciate it so much. If people want to connect with you in some way, where can they find you? Uh, best thing is probably uh, email, so Danielle at Kidanchi, that's Q-I-D-A-N-C-H-I dot com, uh, or look me up on LinkedIn, Danielle Menser, and uh, message me through that. Perfect. We'll add that into the show notes, and hopefully we'll have you on again at some point. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks very much, Petra. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. Uh, And please do get in touch through PetraBelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.